Are you in a rut? Stressed by the demands of your personal, professional, and social lives? Join lifestyle guru Pauline Brown right now for Tastemakers. That's really where people can really make the celebrated individual the centerpiece. She invites her friends to share tips of the trade and new ideas for bringing out the best in you. My real passion is style, and not just style, but design, beauty, all things aesthetic. Turn the mundane into the memorable with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers. Hello, welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. I am uh, excited for today's show. Uh, full disclosure, I'm actually nervous for it, and I don't get nervous very often. Um, and the reason I'm nervous is this is the first time in the oh, close to five years that I've been recording on SiriusXM that I don't have a guest. Uh, I have my team here, and I want to bring them to the fore. They're with me every week, uh, but usually not as audible as they will be today. Um, but I usually have a guest, and uh, and the guest has a topic of expertise um, and passion, and I very much orient the conversations around that person or group of people's passions. And what we decided to do today, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, which I'll get into, is to actually orient this show and this conversation around my passions. Um, and, and before I even get into what they are, um, and you can guess that it has something to do with the word tastemaker, I thought I would just share a bit more about my journey, about how I even got to this point. Why, why do I even have a radio show? Because it didn't start with me going into broadcasting and saying I wanted to be the next Barbara Walters, although I would, wouldn't mind being the next Barbara Walters, but that was not my path at all. And, um, and the other point I want to make before I tell you a bit more uh, than is normally divulged on this show is many people look at my most recent job title, uh, which was head of North America for the world's leading luxury goods group. And they assume that I kind of came into this world of style and fashion and tastemaker and beauty as, as if I was somehow born into it. And I had this natural gift and therefore I was able to impart all sorts of wisdom. And that is not the case. Um, whatever I know about that world it was pretty much self-taught and over many, many years. And, um, and, and so I thought even before I get into today's show and before I get into what I've learned in the latter stages of my career, I would share a bit of how I even fell into that business um, and what happened to Pauline before she was even a business person. Um, and it all kind of came together in a very unexpected way. So let me start in the beginning by saying um, I am a first-generation American. I was born into a solidly middle-class family in the New York area, grew up most of my life in the New York area. Um, we had enough, I mean, there was never worries about food on the table, but there were certainly no extras. Um, I happened to spend the formative years of my growing up in a very affluent community outside the city in Long Island. We were not affluent by the standards of that community. And so I always felt somewhat deprived, which is interesting to me because for several years, I've been dating a guy who grew up in a very middle-class family in Queens, but everybody he went to Catholic school with, everybody who lived in the neighborhood were equally middle-class, in fact, even working class. And so he was never really aware of being any different than the others he knew. And I was acutely aware at a young age that I didn't have what so many of my peers did, which was fancy vacations, big houses, maybe even second houses. 
They had um, lots of clothes. The girls in my town, they grew up fast and they dressed really well. And so I had to become resourceful in even just to fit in a little bit. Uh, and even as resourceful as I thought I was, which was like raiding my father's closet and repurposing. And, and by the way, my dad is not a hipster. So this tells you like how, how low I was sinking. But the, the reason I'm bringing this up is, uh, um, is, is whatever taste I've cultivated over the many decades really started from a place of just sheer determination and sensitivity and a will to sort of have more than I was given. Um, and when I went to school, so I, I was a good student and I worked very hard. I was a good student in part because I, I was disciplined. I wouldn't say even on that front, things came more naturally to me than to others, but I did work hard. And I went to school and I assumed, even though I always had this fascination with uh, beauty and art and fashion and makeup. I love doing makeovers um, at, you know, with my sister and her friends and so forth. I had all that interest, but I always assumed I had to park it when I went to school. And that um, in order to be a serious person, in order to have a big career, um, in order to propel myself forward, I had to be a professional. And a professional was not a person who exhibited a lot of style. A professional was not a person who was playing with makeup. A professional was somebody who, you know, projected seriousness and who had good qualitative and quantitative skills and who was sort of, um, I would say the archetype of a successful person for me was this kind of classic American white male, right? And, um, and that was not me, by the way. And when I said before, I'm first generation American, I'm also, um, all four of my grandparents were German Jewish. And so I grew up in a very sort of old world European home with a lot of tchotchkes and a lot of traditions. And so in order for me to fit in as my career started to take hold, I had to feel a little bit like I had to take a different persona, which was this other persona of the successful white man that was kind of ruling the corporate empires. Um, I, but, but I thought that was the only path I knew. So I, I went to business school um, for one reason and one reason only, which was how can I be taken seriously? I had been an English major as an undergrad. I always had an interest in theater and art, and I knew that I wouldn't be taken seriously if I stayed down that path, which is a shame, by the way. I'm not proud of the fact that I felt I had to abandon those other interests in order to be a serious, successful person. But that's how I felt, you know, circa 1982, 84, 88. Um, and then, so I went to business school in the 1990s. Uh, I was only one of about 25% of my class at the Wharton Business School that were women. And one thing I'm gonna say as a side note um, that actually pains me a lot is every time I go now to reunions, we had a 25th reunion not too long ago, I'm shocked by how few of those 25% of the class who are women, how few are still working. Um, and that's a whole separate conversation, but it, it's an observation that stays with me. And, um, but I was one of those people, I stayed the course um, and I kind of had, there were two Paulines. There was the Pauline that, you know, my friends knew, my family knew that was playful and creative and fun uh, and colorful. And there was a Pauline that kind of came to life on the job, which, you know, was disciplined and serious and a little bit uh, severe, I would say, um, that had learned how to play very well with powerful men. Uh, and I, I mean that in, um, in almost a peer-like way. Um, and so I had a 
I won't call it a crisis because it, it, it wasn't quite as dramatic as that, but I would say I had a turning point, a real turning point, and it wasn't an easy one for me. And it was just a few years out of business school. And I just felt miserable. I hated what I did. I dreaded going into work every day. I was working at a consulting firm in Boston. I was a management consultant at Bain and Company. I should have felt on top of the world. It took a lot of years and hard work to get to that point. I was earning a lot of money. I was with super smart people working on big corporate projects and I hated it. And I thought there has to be another path for me without having to abandon all those other things that I work for. And I went to um, a, a woman in Boston who back then we called a career counselor. Nowadays, we would have called her a coach. Uh, and it was even a bit of a of a concession for me to go to a counselor because I felt like I had to show vulnerability, but I did. And we had a few sessions together and it changed my path. We and, and, and we did a lot of exercises for me to really get at, number one, who is Pauline? Who What is the vision for Pauline who could be both authentic to herself, but also could, um, could be could could achieve what felt like success to her, even if it was a different definition than what other people had imposed. Um, we did a lot of different exercises, but there was one in particular, and I, I'm going to share this with you because I've shared it with quite a few other people um, in earlier stages in their career who reached that, you know, that 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 inflection point where they say, "Whatever I'm doing, it's not working, and I don't know how to reinvent. I don't even know where to begin." And what th this is the exercise we did. And I think about this, even though that was some 30 years ago now, I think about it now and again. And every time I stray from what the exercise taught me, I find myself moving in the wrong direction. And that's how powerful it was. So at the time she gave me about, um, there were about a hundred different cards, little cards of paper. And on every card was an adjective. And it was an adjective that could describe without judgment, a job slash career. Um, and the adjective could be as mundane as uh, big office, have a big office or travel a lot or routine hours. And it could be as philosophical as stretches my imagination or um, introduces me to diverse set of people, right? So it was just any adjective that you could ever give or, or description, I should say, you could ever give to a job or a career. And there were about a hundred of them. And I had to take every one of those cards and I had to put them in one of three piles. And one pile was um, highly desirable. Like when I hear that description, that's exactly what I want in my next job. Another pile was highly undesirable. Like when I hear that description, it, it, it's a pit in my stomach. I need to just I, I want to avoid that at all costs. And then the other pile was kind of a neutral reaction. Like for me, um, you know, having an office on a high floor versus a low floor, I don't really care, right? There are people who need a great view. Like to me, that's not the most important thing and I could take it or leave it. So we go through this exercise. Of course, the middle pile is always going to be the largest because most things, you know, we give or take. And then um, this counselor says to me, take the grouping, which I probably had about 25 cards in my highly desirable pile, meaning these are really important to me. And she said, now I want you to pick your top 10, which gets a little bit hard because you already have determined that these are all really important, but I had to pick my top 10. And then she says to me, okay, now I want you to rank your top 10. 
Now it gets really hard because these are 10 things out of 100 that I've already said are really important and I have to rank them one to 10. And then we, after we do that exercise, she says, okay, even among your top 10, at this stage in your life, and I was only maybe three, four years out of business school, probably hovering around 30 years old, you're not gonna get all top 10 in that next job or in that career. But your top three are your non-negotiables, meaning don't even consider an opportunity that doesn't do those three, doesn't offer those three. And by the way, the closer we can get is we, maybe, maybe the top four can be your non-negotiables. And maybe the top five are the things that start to find what you really want. And so the reason I say that is when I go back to what were my cards and my top three, four, five, they're things that to this day, like 30 days, 30 years later, are still really, really important to me. And so one of the things on my top three uh, I'll share with you was work with creative people. I thought that was super interesting because I wasn't trained as a creative. I didn't have a craft. I didn't go to art school. And I didn't actually need to do creative work. Um, but what I needed to do was to be driven by people around me who were doing creative work. And then, and it kind of, the sky kind of opened when I saw that because I realized that throughout my life, when I blocked off like all the people I'd gotten to know through my work or through my you know, class experiences, school experiences, my best friends were all highly creative people, the people I was drawn to throughout my life. And creativity could be in the form of writing, it could be design, it could be you know, even musically. It didn't really matter what their craft or their art was, but people who think in that other way are very, very attractive to me and very exciting to me. So I needed to be in a company that was driven by that kind of energy. Another thing that came up really important to me, funny enough, was, I have to be in New York. It was some people have to be in urban environments. Some people have to be in rural environments. I even I was living in Boston at the time, which is a city, a decent sized city, but it wasn't New York. And even though I had friends, I had a very nice lifestyle. But when I'm not in a place that feels like we're my home, I'm not as rooted, I'm not as happy. And all of a sudden, that was a really important conclusion because I could take all those interesting opportunities that were coming my way or that I was fantasizing about in London or go out to the West Coast, and I could just put it aside. I had to be in New York. It's where my family was. It's where you know my, my people were. It's where my roots were. Another thing that was very important to me and this still is important to me, you know, this was in the mid 90s and all of my friends who are leaving the world of consulting or banking, many of the people coming out of business school go into those two professions, were moving either into the dot com. So this is 1.0, Internet 1.0 or the venture capital world, because that like and Silicon Valley was just beginning to take off. And Boston had a mini version of that Silicon Valley. And what was interesting to me is as exciting and as hot as that those two sectors were, neither really held appeal for me. Because one of my other criteria or descriptions that came up in the card is that I need to be in a company or industry that whatever happens around the world, it's still going to exist in 10 years from now, maybe 50 years from now. There was this underlying stability. And while the internet in its first phase was an exciting, eye-opening, really mind-blowing space. It wasn't even clear to me that it was gonna be around in a couple of years from now. And what's interesting is even to this day when I have friends who are all gaga about like NFTs or Bitcoins 
or electric vehicles. These are all really hot areas and, and a lot of people have made fortunes on them. A lot of people have lost fortunes on them, but I don't know what that looks like in three or five or 10 years. But the businesses that I found myself in, 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 in fashion, in um, decor, in these storied wine and spirits industries, in watches and jewelry, like these are, these are time-tested industries. And wherever I can play, I know that they're going to be around in 100 years from now as they were 100 years ago. So those are just a few of the higher ranking cards that came up. And, in, and, and I guess the last one that, that I will say is, um, so I talked about it has to be in New York. It had to be creatively driven. It had to be um, uh, an industry that was timeless in a way. But the other card that, that came up very high, which is interesting to me, and also explains why I have an aversion to NFTs and digital is, um, I really wanted to be in an industry that made products. I realized like I'm a product person. I'm not a service person. One of the many reasons I was unhappy as a consultant is that the only product I could speak to was this sort of deck, this like PowerPoint presentation that get, went to the client. And I, I get a satisfaction in being affiliated with companies that make things. And it's weird because in 1995, like that was not cool to go into manu manufacturing. Everyone wanted to go into services. They wanted to go into digital entertainment. I wanted to go into a business that made things. So the reason I'm sharing all of this is that, I, and we're going to get after the break to where I sit today in this world, but those four, and those are just four of my top 10 that I just shared with you, but those four criteria or descriptions are ones that kind of led me to a path that continues to drive me all those years later. And so what, what, what I would say is, you know, a lot of times when people are going through their own mini crisis, career crisis, or whatever it is, they really start too much with the end result. And they don't think enough about the values. They don't think enough about the connection between what drives them, what gives you energy, what gives you inspiration versus what takes it away. And for me, um, thank God for that career counselor back in 1995, you know, um, because in the absence of that, I probably would have kept doing what what was expected and what society said was a successful path. And by making that adjustment at a relatively early stage, I was able to put myself on a path that continued to build on a very strong foundation and ultimately found success. So when we're back from the break, I, I wanna actually share, I wanna bring you to the present and I wanna share what this idea of, of tastemaking means to me. Coming from that you know, middle-class girl with um, you know, support from her parents, but not in the form of a lot of financial, you know, excesses with, with, with really, but, but a lot of drive and how that came together and, and how that kind of helped shape, not just the career that I've had, but the taste levels that I've developed and what I'm doing today to teach other people to really cultivate their taste and understand their taste. So stay with us. You're listening to Tastemakers. Can't wait to share the rest of my story. I'll be right back. Now, more with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers on Sirius XM Stars. Hi, welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. As I explained a few minutes ago, I am taking a very different tact today on the show. This is the first time in all the years that I've been recording um, that I don't have an outside guest. I just have me. 
I'm my own guest and I have my team here. I have Ciara Kaiser and Mark Afflalo, as you know from uh, prior calls. Uh, and, and prior conversations, Mark is our expert sound guy. He also, by the way, and you wouldn't know this, has a great voice. So I have to bring him on the air. And uh, Ciara is my brilliant producer. Um, she is uh, such an extraordinary support and she's just very good at her job. And I'm gonna ask her today questions that I suspect no one has ever asked her before and, and that I don't know the answer for the number of uh, shows we've done together. There's still some things that I hardly know about her. So before we went to the break, I was talking about my personal journey. And what I wanted to bring it to is this idea um, of aesthetic journeys. So everyone has a story, right? And when I think of the people I know, and I, over the years, have met a lot of people in a lot of different professions, but including people who are really prominent in the worlds of design and fashion, and decor, and we always assume that they have some sort of God-given gift, and that and, and most of them don't. Um, some of them may have uh, ability to work with their hands, or you know, super tasters if they're uh, a culinary expert. But for the most part, those who get to the highest level of their professions have worked really hard and have taken whatever natural proclivities they have, whatever natural and slight advantages, and really honed them. And one of the things I realized in my career, because I was always on the business side of these uh, design-driven companies, but I had exposure to people who were on the creative side, and I partnered with them, and I supported them, you know, in terms of operationally and financially, making sure that they were well protected, but I also observed them closely. And creative people think differently. Part of the reason they think differently is because they're wired a bit differently. Um, you know, if you're a mathematician, you're kind of, your, your mind is, is working in, you know, there's different spheres of the brain that are activated and there's different sort of logical ways to process information. And creative people tend to be highly sensorial, meaning that they process information, not just through this sort of linear logical approach, but they often process it through their feelings and through their sensations. Um, and really creative people don't stop with the feeling because uh, that just leads, that's what I call aesthetic sensitivity. But aesthetic intelligence is what do you do with the feeling and how do you harness it and how do you cultivate it such that even someone like, let's take someone like Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs was not an artist. He was never trained in any artistic capacity. Um, he was a good businessman, but I would say he wasn't necessarily on par with um, Warren Buffett as an investor or um, Bill Gates as a programmer. He wasn't on that part. But what he had was extraordinary aesthetic intelligence. So he was able to take a feeling of what, say, a, a computer or a phone could look and feel like and mobilize thousands of other people, people working under him in his service, in the service of Apple, toward produ producing something that was very much to his personal taste. And his taste, by the way, is someone who grew up in the 50s and 60s in suburban California was what we often describe, you know, um, for brevity, we call it mid-century California style, which is kind of like mid-century modern or California modern, some people call it. And it's, it's, um, or, or it's marked by 
uh, uh, demarcation, a clear demarcation between what is the outside and the inside. So you use a lot of glass, you have a lot of open air environments. A lot of the colors are very um, nuanced. You don't, you know, in typically in uh, mid-century modern homes, you're not using, you know, bright colors, you know, blue shutters or what we might do with French Norman. We'll use a lot of woods, a lot of natural materials. Uh, you, all of your structures sort of ease into the landscape. And if you think about the design of the products, especially going back to the first iteration of Mac computers, for example, um, they kind of resemble some of the elements that we think of as mid-century modern architecture. And so that kind of shaped his view of what would look and feel good. And what shaped my view of what looks and feels good is a combination of two forces. And I didn't know this until I reflected well into my career because I can admire a lot of different styles, but they're not my style. I love them. I am amazed, actually enamored at other people's ability to carry them off. But my style is really shaped by two very clear social forces. And one is, I mentioned the beginning of the show, I'm born here in America. I come from a European family. It wasn't French European. It wasn't English European. It was um, sort of Central, Euro Central Europe. Um, my grandparents were all German, but they sort of came through Hungary. There was a lot of kind of um, homage to Victorian European, almost Habsburg dynasty-like aesthetic. It's a lot of um, detailing um, influences from the colonial times where you'd have sort of pieces that might have come from Istanbul or pieces that would come from Vienna. Actually, my father was born in Vienna. So it was a lot of detailing and a lot of gilded and a lot of Victorian structures in my home, furniture and so forth. And then I also grew up in New York. And I said, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Whenever I'm away for any length of time, I, I, I miss it tremendously. And so the other thing that really informed my style was the New York that I knew in the 70s, 80s, not so much the New York today, which is a lot of skyscrapers and it's all, you know, hyper modern and kind of, I think of the Hudson Yards where everything is spick and span and not that New York, it's a little grittier than that, a little edgier, a little harder and faster and bolder. So a lot of people ask me, because I teach, I teach at, I was teaching for two years at the Harvard Business School. Now I teach at Columbia Business School and I teach a class called the Business of Aesthetics, which is my, um, my discipline in my post-corporate uh, post days. And what, they asked me, what is the business of aesthetics? And I say, well, it's really the business of bringing beauty or whatever you define as your form of beauty into a company. And it could be in the form of what, how you bring it into a brand. It could be in the office design. It could be in um, the, um, the, the sort of the cultural elements. It could be in the products and the packaging. It depends. Even law firms and insurance companies have a, an aesthetic position. Obviously, the most, uh, the most clear cut would be in those companies like fashion that are built on great aesthetics. And so I teach business students, MBAs, how you can bring this idea of what your sense of beauty, not my sense, but your sense into your company and into your value proposition. And the question that I get, and here's where I'm trying to bring together a few different threads, is well, can you actually teach that? Can you teach taste? Or aren't people just, they have it and they don't, and some people know how to express it and some people don't. And, 
And my answer is absolutely you can taste, you, you could teach it, absolutely. I mean, let's just use a very um, basic example, um, wine. So no child will be coming to this world at two years old, at four years old, at five years old, and enjoy the taste of alcohol for the same reason they don't enjoy the taste of coffee. Now, not everybody grows into adulthood and loves wine or beer or scotch or whatever your thing is, um, but a lot of people do. And a small portion of the population even love it so much that they become sommeliers. And an even smaller portion become master sommeliers, which is incredibly competitive and hard, hard to achieve. And, and I've met some of these sommeliers over the years because I worked with Moet Hennessy, which is one of the largest um, champagne producers, as well as Hennessy, which is cognac. And what's interesting is, you know, none of these sommeliers started in their, let's say, 20 at the year of, age of 20 or 25 with that capacity. But they learned over time and with very, very careful attention how to develop the palate and how to recognize the fragrances of different uh, alcoholic spirits, how, how to articulate what it was they were experiencing. And this is a craft like everything else. So the first thing I say is, while some people probably have a little bit more, let's call it finely tuned uh, capability than others in the beginning, ultimately people who make it to the top whatever their starting point, have worked really hard to get there and have focused their energies. The same thing is, um, let, let me take the example of uh, a friend of mine who's been on the show some time ago, Donna Karen. Donna is an interesting character. She's a fashion designer um, because she actually never graduated from Parsons. She went to Parsons School of Design. She certainly had an interest in fashion. Irony of ironies, she failed her draping class. She talks about that she talked about that with me on the air, and she's talked about that in her book. She failed draping. And I say that's an irony because if there's one thing that Donna's known, known for, it's her ability to work with textiles and fabrics and, 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 and create this sort of uh, fluidity on the body, which is all about draping. But she failed. But what, what's interesting about Donna is um, her talent, if you think about her collections going back to the 80s and the 90s, is not about color. In fact, her color palettes tend to be very narrow. She uses a lot of black and white and occasionally a, a chocolate brown or a, once in a blue moon introduces a single tone like a red. But her color palette is pretty simple. And it's not really about her um, ability like an Issey Miyake who is constantly reworking the technology of fabric and how you can kind of reshape the body. That's much more avant-garde. That's not her. In fact, if you look at her designs, let's call it 1985, and then you look at them in 1995, the way they fall on the body uh, has, didn't change that much. Her silhouettes didn't change that much. Her real talent is, she is, is in her fingertips. She can pick up a swatch of a, 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 a cloth and immediately have an instinct about how it will feel on the body, about how it will flow, and about how you can work it with other materials to create sort of this to, to, to sort of this create this 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 fabrication, right? This this really interesting construction that again feels good because she's very 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 obsessed with how things feel as a woman wearing the clothes, as opposed to just how it looks in an ad or on a runway. So. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is all the people that I've met who have these, what we would see as these creative gifts, 
um, they cultivated them with a lot of focus, a lot of care. They made a lot of mistakes along the way. Donna has her share of failed collections, um, but they stayed at it. And so for sure, you can, everyone, we, we all start with an appreciation for ice cream, but some people then become, um, you know, master uh, bakers. And, uh, and, and, and that's, you know, that's the difference between the majority of people who just enjoy a cone of ice cream and others who really make it into a business. So what, there, there, there are four steps. Um, there are really four steps to developing taste. And then I'm going to give you, um, after I go through them very briefly, I'm going to give you what I call taste hacks, which um, can be quick ways to, um, to start to identify what, what some of your own influences are. Remember I told you mine was some combination between my you know, Eastern European heritage and my sort of New York modernity, right? And I'm going to actually do a little bit of a, of a test with, uh, with Mark and Ciara then to see what their taste hacks are. So the first step in developing taste is what I call um, uh, attunement, just awareness. If there, at any given time there's noises that are um, that are uh, in the air, there's uh, textures that are hitting our body, there's scents that are you know that that, that are hitting our olfactory senses, and most of the time, ninety nine percent of these sensations we block we may remember the one we're tuning to. So the most obvious thing that you're listening to right now is my voice, right? But what you're probably not hearing while you're listening to my voice is something having to do with the car engine, or maybe in my case, while I'm, um, while I'm talking, my dryer is on in the back. I have a load of laundry and I'm not focusing on it, but when I do focus, I can actually hear, hear the cycle. So there's a lot of sensations that we're blocking. So the first step to developing great taste is just to learn to unblock. Not permanently or you go crazy, <laughs> you've got to stay focused, but at least know, you know, how does that, how does that chair feel that you're sitting on? Um, or if you're, if you're in your car right now and it's a, a leather seat versus vinyl, does it, uh, is it, is it irritating in some places? Is the stitching coming off? Being just, again, in your body and in your sensations. The second step is, is what I call, um, interpretation, which is not just sensing, but it's knowing how it's making you feel both good and bad. So we accept a lot of things that are minor irritants. But when we start to uncover not just what irritates us, but maybe what pleases us, are there certain, for example, if you were in your apartment and there was a, I'm making it up, but if there was a, a, a coconut candle in the backdrop or a vanilla candle, are these scents giving you a certain sensation and more than just a pleasant one. What does it make, what, what is it bringing to mind? And the more specific you can be in your descriptive, this is interpretation. And that's, and that's part of the power of aesthetic intelligence. The third step is what I call um, articulation. So being able to actually put words, and if you don't use words, can you use um, images? Are there ways you can describe it so that someone who's not experiencing that sensation could imagine exactly what you're feeling. That's a, the power of articulation. And the last is what I call curation, which is when now, you, now what do we do with it? And how do we bring it together? And I always, the best way I can describe curation is if you were having a dinner party and you know, you're having a bunch of friends over for dinner on Saturday and you wanna prepare a really nice meal, you wouldn't say, okay, these are my 10 favorite ingredients. I love oranges, 
I love salmon. I love uh, I love beer and whatever it is you love. And, and just let's bring it all together because these are my 10 favorite things. You wouldn't do that. What you would probably do is start with one, what I call narrator piece. So let's say you started with a salmon and then you'd start to think what goes well with the salmon and how should I serve the salmon on what, you know, you're not going to serve salmon on a paper plate that would detract from it, right? Um, so that's curation. It's about editing the experience so that it's not about the individual parts, but it's how it all comes together to tell a story or to give, you know, to give something memorable to those who come. So th th those are the four steps. Before we break, we have about another few minutes. Um, I want to talk to you about these taste hacks. The, there are lots of ways you can try to get to your, what, what is your taste? You can try to get there quickly. Um, and I designed a few. These taste hacks I actually um, introduce on my uh, online program. It's called Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, which is open to the public. And I have a whole workbook of them that are fun ways to kind of get back into what formed your own sense of what looks and feels good. So one of them, uh, and again, I'm going to bring Ciara and Mark into the conversation, is what I call your style icon. So think of a person, living or dead, could be someone famous, could be uh, somebody who was in your family and nobody else knows, but you know. And if you had to pick one person who all factors considered represents your ideal, like somebody that you just say, that person nailed it and it really spoke to me, who would that person be? And, and I'll tell you later with these various uh, hacks, aesthetic hacks or taste hacks, what you can do with them. But Ciara, does somebody come to mind? Yeah, immediately when you said that, I thought of when I was 15 and I absolutely fell in love with Katy Perry, the hugest pop star at the time, and idealizing the way she dressed, the way she acted. I wanted to become a pop star. I wanted to dress like a pinup girl and be the, the teenage dream type of thing. And mm. though I didn't fit into that mold in the end and I'm happy for it, I very much wanted to be and sought out to be, even as a 15-year-old impossible to emulate Katie. Yeah. Perry. Yeah. That's, she's a great one. I think she's a style icon for a lot of uh, your generation. And I think what, what's interesting about Katy Perry is she stayed, you know, like, like look at her, uh, her contemporary, like a Gwen Stefani who had that Harajuki following huge, huge impact, but she's kind of evolved into a very different archetype. And Katy Perry has really stayed very true to her particular aesthetic, which is kind of it's bold. It's it's cartoony, but without being um, unreal. Mm -hmm. I I can totally see that. And how about you, Mark? This is a hard one because I think as a male, we're less in tune with remembering facts like that. So if mm. I were you know to think of a person that you know you know, that I would try to emulate the swagger or want to be, or you know, not necessarily be personality wise, but I think of someone like a Robert Downey Jr. with that kind of mm. like, you know, not too dressed up and fancy kind of laid back attitude, um, but still classy. I love that you picked that. First of all, um, when I talk about style, I don't just think about how people dress, although that's a big piece of it. It's probably the most obvious, but I think of an attitude that's expressed through everything they do. It's in the case of Robert Downey Jr., even um, his speaking style speaks to me 
how and I introduced you to somebody who just has, you have a really smooth voice and he's a really smooth guy. Like he's just, he's really cool. <laughs> and you yeah. are too. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a different energy than Katy Perry. Right. But, and, uh, but again, what, so a couple of things that are interesting, cause I've asked every one of my students and I've had, since I started teaching uh, three and a half, three, at least three, three to 400, I've never, and, and it's just an interesting side note. I've never had a woman pick a guy as a style icon, and I've never had a guy pick a woman. And the other interesting thing is just an observation, but my students who, for example, are African-American typically pick someone of color, almost always. Um, and, the, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is um, our, our style icons, again, it's not just about the clothes, it's an essence, it's an attitude. And... I can always see, like the minute you said Katy Perry and the minute you said Robert Downey Jr., I could see the connection, right? Even though I did not give you this question in advance. And if I kept probing, you each would probably come up with two or three more. It's not the only person. Oh boy, I have so many other taste hacks and, and, and we're running out of time, but here's what I'm gonna do. Um, we have a final few minutes. I'm gonna have time for at least two more to ask you each on the wind down and then, if my partners here, Ciara and Mark, agree, we're going to pick up on this conversation next week because I have honestly, I've just scratched the surface of how much I have to say on this topic. So stay with us. You're listening to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. We now return to Tastemakers with Pauline Brown on Sirius XM Stars. Welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. Um, I am here this hour in a most unconventional format. First time in years, in the, in the I want to say five years or so, going on five years that I've been recording, that I do not have a guest. <laughs> and I started the show uh, uh, confessing that I'm nervous about this because I'm not usually, you know, I'm, I'm the inquisitor. I'm not usually the one actually providing responses. And, and, and my, my teammates here, Ciara and Mark, were generous enough to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll be your guests of sorts. Um, and, and so right before we went to the break, I was talking about, what I call taste hacks, different ways that you can get at what might help sh either shape your taste or indicate, you know, what feels and looks good to you. And one of the strategies I'm going to recommend, and I'm going to come back to this over the next few weeks, because the question then is always, well, what do you do with this? Is that you start doing a mood board, okay? And you could start the mood board with simple postings of your taste hacks, which, you know, just for inspiration. So before the break, I asked Ciara and, and, and I asked Mark what their style icon, who their style icons are. And I, they could have picked anyone in the world. And Mark picks Robert Downey Jr., which makes perfect sense. And Ciara picks Katy Perry, which makes perfect sense. So now I'm going to ask them another question. And this is your beauty mark. Your beauty mark is an object that you own. It is not something that was handed down to you. So it doesn't have the sentimental value of an heirloom. It's something you actually could go and buy today again. So it wasn't a rare thing that, you know, is, is a keepsake. And it just gives you great joy. And, and, and it doesn't just give you great joy because it works well every time, but there's something about it, even if you can't pinpoint what it is, that is it just, it, you're so happy you have this object in your life. Um, and it, 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 it could be a piece, an item of clothing. It could be um, a piece of furniture, again, store-bought, but just 
gives you an, an emotion every time that is desirable. Ciara? I think there's a couple fashion items I was thinking of, but definitely I would peg it down to my denim jacket. It's, it's very functional. I've had it for a long time and it's got some patches on it. And I think that really communicates the voice that that charges the item so much. I've, mm. I'm a queer woman and it has a rainbow on it. It gets me attention and that kind of validates who I am. And, and that's why it carries so much beyond its great function. So that's mm. what I would choose. And what, do you know what the brand is? I think it's some random brand. Like I think it's like Brooklyn apparel type of right. thing, but right. you know that they can be so general, but it's that classic right. blue denim. Is the fact that it isn't uh, an obvious brand part of its appeal? I think so, because it was kind of arbitrary. I've just had mm -hmm. it. I just got mm -hmm. it because I needed a jacket of, of versatile use. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have, yeah, it's, it's describing my brand versus what yep. it is. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. Yep. And how about you, Mark? Now, can this be something that this is something I have to, I've had a long time or something I might've got recently? It can be either. So I, be I, either. You know, being, being a tech guy, um, uh, th there's two things that come to mind. There's one of my drones, which gives me oh. great pleasure in kind of disconnecting myself from the world. And it's one of these hobbies that I have that really helps me kind of separate everything else. I, I go sit outside and I fly my drone for 20 minutes and it takes me away from from the world that I'm in mm. um, and and I've had drones over the years as they've you know evolved uh, mostly the same brand which is DJI um, mm. uh, and it it's one of these things that just gives me great joy and I think as mm. a parent there's few things in my life that I own that are mine anymore <laughs> especially with a son uh, at 11, 11 years old who just takes everything that I own whereas this is one of these things he knows I don't touch that it's it's daddy's time mm. to just kind of go and do it and the other thing is just it's my car it's it's you know yeah. and it's what always, is your car uh, bmw x3 okay interesting because yeah. i do i do quite a bit of work in the automotive industry i'm actually going down to bmw tomorrow to give a lecture and i talk a lot um i love that you mentioned the car i mean the drone is super interesting because that's your that's it's, it's yours and it's a toy and it's it, what it does, the transportive thing is, uh, it, it, I can see the car is an identifier. The car, so I'm, you didn't describe the drone in terms of what it looks like. It really was what you can do with it. Because a drone is more, you know, it's about the world that it gives you access to. You know, I, yeah. I've always wanted to fly, but, mm -hmm. you know, to go down the path of getting a license to fly is a lot of time, and I'm just, I'm done with school. Um, mm. So this <laughs> allows me to, you know, look at a screen and pretend that I'm in the air flying, mm -hmm. and, and I have that mm. control. Whereas the mm. car side, it's definitely an identifier, It's um, but I find it less for, I don't care what other people think. Yep. It's more for me, whereas I know a lot of people right. are very, you know, identified by the car they drive. Yes. Um, and for you also, I'm sure, you know, look, this is the, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a driving machine, right? What, what's the BMW motto? That's exactly it, yeah. Um, and I think it's, um, I think that in both cases, what it suggests to me, I mean, you're, you're a sound engineer. And, um, and I'm going to really emphasize this engineer. And the idea of, of how things work is part of their aesthetic appeal to you. Like the, the, the things you can't see, right? I can see the outside of the car, I could see the color, but you didn't even tell me the color. You, um, but, you, but, but the way it functions is, is, is where you get your aesthetic joy. And that's, the, that's a mark often in, in an older era of watch collectors. Like nobody gets a watch 
you know, an old Rolex because they need to tell the time. Nobody, not one. <laughs> so, but people are fascinated by the movements, you know, which haven't changed in, you know, hundreds of years. In terms that would have been my third option. Made. The watch would have been my third, but it was an heirloom. Like my first Rolex was an heirloom mm -hmm. from my grandfather. And I, uh, long story short, I lost it. And, uh, and, it, and I bought myself a new one to replace mm. it. And then I found it. It, mm. uh, and this is not in my home. This is somewhere totally. I thought I was I was on a trip and it disappeared. And then years later, I opened a drawer in the office that I was in and it was sitting there. Um, oh, it must have given you so much joy oh, to reunite with it. Was, it. It was it was it was amazing. But that would have yeah. been my third choice, even though yeah. I never wear it anymore. Because yeah. you know, as a tech guy, I'm wearing the Apple Watch, like most right, people are right. these days. So, but, but you I know what? In all the years, pieces. in all the years I've been doing this, and and a good portion of my students have Apple watches, but they usually don't reference that that's not a beauty mark yeah. it's they're happy to have it it serves its purpose and what's interesting sierra about your denim jacket is you don't need it to stay warm you have i'm guessing at least 12 other things you could at any given time wear to give you the coverage that the denim jacket gives you right but it's probably a combination of the signifiers like the rainbow and how it feels it's sort of over time denim adapts to your body almost in the way sneakers do, right? And if anyone else wore it, they wouldn't feel the same connection to it that you do, but you put it on and it's 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 your your armor. Um, so I, I, I don't have time for my next hack. Um, and I have another one, so I'm gonna hold it for next week. I actually have quite a few others, but I will hold the other one I would have squeezed into my final few seconds. Um, because this was fun and I wanna continue to get to know Sierra and Mark alongside the rest of you. Um, and I want to continue to share um, reflections on not just the past and how I got to this point, but maybe even more relevantly to listeners out there, where I think this idea of aesthetics and aesthetic intelligence is going, what it means in a post-COVID world where you know our connection to our clothes and uh, to expressions of who we are have changed pretty drastically. They haven't gone away, they've just changed and they're continuing to. So I hope, uh, I hope you'll stay with us next week when I'm back for more on this topic of aesthetics. And, um, and in the meantime, if you have any questions or reactions to today's show, if you want to give me any feedback, well, how can they do it, Ciara? How can they let us know what they think? Well, um, I guess reach out on social media if you can. Uh, I'm, I'm on there and I field a lot of serious comments and I'm, I know Pauline is as well, but... Mm -hmm. And yeah, Pauline Garris Brown is me. Okay, so thank you, thank you for for tuning in today. Thank you for your 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 candor and your inspiration and your support as always, Sierra and Mark. Look forward to reconnecting with more about aesthetics and your own aesthetic journey next week. Stay with us next week. <laughs>